Welcome, everyone. Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And I'm so excited and delighted to have the opportunity to dialogue with one of the major research giants in the world and that world-class expert, the top guy in the entire world who's written more topic, more studies on this than anyone alive, uh, Dr. Russell Ryder. And, and the topic we're going to be exploring on this area is Beckford's expertise, which is melatonin. Now, Dr. Ryder has been around a long time. I saw him live for the first time, like in 1995 in a presentation. That's almost 30 years ago, and he's still going strong. I think uh, Dr. Ryder, you have published, when I looked it up on PubMed, over 1,600 papers or somewhere in that range. Is that correct? That's about in the ballpark, certainly. <laughs> Which is crazy. I mean, Dr. Malone, who's come to fame in the last few years with the COVID-19, not Dr. Malone, Dr. McCullough, uh, I think he's got 600, but he hasn't been around as long as you have. So. <laughs> I, I have that advantage. Uh, yeah, obviously. that's for sure. So we're going to talk about melatonin, which I think is the most profoundly exciting antioxidant in biology. Uh, and, it's, and it's been around a long time. And as uh, you bring out in your papers, over 3 billion years, it was pr it's present in um, the prokaryotes, which are bacteria. Right. And also, interestingly... It's in plants, and you, your lab actually discovered that in 1995 and brought it to our forefront. Now more research is done about melatonin in plants than there is in, in animals. So congratulations on that finding. And um, I, don't, I don't, there's just so much I want to talk about, but let, let me, oh, geez. Well, you know, why is melatonin the best? Let's start with this. Why? Because people need to know what melatonin is, why it's so important. So it's, it's a fundamental foundational antioxidant. It's been the longest the antioxidant on the planet. And, you know, some people, and I mean, I had a question before, I was, we, you know, which is the more important antioxidant, melatonin or glutathione? And then it occurred to me after reading your papers that it's melatonin clearly because melatonin actually is responsible for stimulating the synthesis of glutathione. That's true. So, so why don't you just give it, give us a little historical background so people can get up to speed about melatonin. Then I got so many specific detailed questions about how we can optimize this. Yeah. So yeah, you, there's no better person in the world to help us understand this than you. Well, melatonin, as you say, has been here forever, even before I was born. And its functions have evolved and it has worked. It has learned to work successfully with other molecules during this three billion year evolution. And of course, one of the molecules with which it collaborates is glutathione, and it does influence glutathione. But the antioxidant activity of melatonin is extremely diverse. Mm -hmm. It, in fact, is a very good radical scavenger. There are other radical scavengers, vitamin C, vitamin E, and so forth. But melatonin is superior to those. But beyond that, it stimulates antioxidative enzymes, especially in mitochondria. Mitochondria are small organelles in the cell that generate 
the bulk of the free radicals. So it's very important to have a good antioxidant at the level of the mitochondria. And melatonin happens to be located. And in fact, now we know it's synthesized in the mitochondria. Via that actions, melatonin, of course, scavenges radicals that are generated, but it also stimulates something called sirtuin 3 which activates or deacetylates superoxide dismutase, which is a very important antioxidant enzyme, and it also uh, removes free radicals and prevents the degeneration of the mitochondria. And why this is so important is mitochondria are really the center of the action within a cell. In other words, there's strong evidence that aging, frailty of aging, senescence of cell of cells as we age relate to molecular damage at the level of the mitochondria and melatonin seems to be very efficient at protecting mitochondria from that damage. So you mentioned that um, melatonin helps indirectly catalyze SOD through uh, uh, activating SIRT3. But how does it increase glutathione? Does it just do it directly or indirectly? Does it activate it through a transcription factor like NRF2 pathway through the antioxidants response elements? Or I, I, I couldn't find that in the literature. Yeah, well, certainly it's a genomic effect on the enzyme that regulates the synthesis of gamma glutamyl cysteine synthase is the rate limiting enzyme in glutathione synthesis and melatonin, of course, activates that enzyme, probably by a genomic effect, although those details are not completely known. But glutathione, I really have to estimate, is in very high concentrations in cells. Hmm. And, and, and this is very, very important. The, the other thing that often confounds scientists is that the melatonin concentration is not that high within cells, with the exception of mitochondria. In other words, it is where the action occurs. And that's, I think, makes, and and the diversity of functions as an antioxidant. It prevents free radical generation by, by enhancing the efficiency of the electron transport chain. So you get fewer electrons that leak onto oxygen molecules to generate superoxide anion radical. Like I say, it's really the diversity of actions. As I mentioned, throughout evolution, it is learned. It is learned to collaborate, to cooperate with other antioxidants and other molecules. Its functions are extremely diverse. So when the... The glutathione is increased, and I'm sorry I'm just focusing on this, but it's such an important molecule. Is the glutathione intracellular or mostly intramitochondrial? It's intracellular primarily, although there's some also in the actually in the extracellular space, but it's primarily intracellular and it's it's present in the mitochondria, but generally cytosolic glutathione is higher. Okay, interesting, interesting. Okay, so the other just, I've been a fan of sunshine for three decades, probably more than that. And I just embrace it as one of the most fundamental principles that people can adopt, especially if they get the timing right and, you know, well, you know, optimizing circadian biology. But the, one of the reasons is that 
the major one that people think about the sun is ultra ultraviolet B radiation to increase vitamin D levels. And that's absolutely understood. No one would dispute that. But what very few individuals appreciate, including most medical professionals, is that the near, as I understand it, the near infrared and the red part of the spectrum, which is more than 40% of the wavelengths of the sun, are actually, when they're on the skin, go into the mitochondria and they help the mitochondria generate uh, melatonin. Uh, Do I have that right? Is that that correct? You have that correct. That, that is a very important point in reference to mitochondrial melatonin. Near-infrared radiation penetrates relatively easily the skin and subcutaneous tissues. And of course, every one of those cells contains uh, mitochondria. And it appears that near-infrared radiation that is detected is, in fact, induces melatonin production. That is important because we now think that melatonin within mitochondria is inducible under a lot of stressful conditions. That is not definitively proven, but it appears that under stress, all cells may upregulate their ability to produce melatonin because it's so highly productive and typically under stress, free radicals are generated. That is mm. that is emphasized by the importance is that in the plants we know exactly that happens. In other words, if you expose the plants to drought, to heat, to cold, to metal toxicity, the first thing they do is upregulate their melatonin because all of those situations generate free radicals. And we suspect, we suspect, although that has not yet been definitely proven in animal cells as well, including humans. And of course, you're right about near-infrared radiation. It penetrates the skin and it activates melatonin synthesis so far as we can tell. That's a very new field. I'm really pleased you mentioned it. And you're right, very, very few people know this aspect of now who, who, who uncovered this fact was it your lab who who uncovered it yeah uh, scott zimmerman he's a lighting expert in new jersey he and i collaborated on a paper about three years ago where we explained this phenomenon subsequently of course others angie slominski at the university of birmingham is, who's a skin expert has looked at it. And there's a gentleman also in California by the name of Roger Seahold. I don't know if you know him. Oh, he, sure. Yeah, yeah. That's actually, he did, a, he, he, he founded MedCram. And that's, so he's, I posted his video on my site. And that, that his, he, he was the guy that woke me up to this fact. I yes. had no idea. Absolutely. He, he did a really nice job in his presentation of this subject. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So can I, I'd like to dive a little deep into because I think this is such a fundamental importance. So is it just near-infrared or red? And within that spectrum, I'm wondering if you know the specific frequency or wavelengths that the range of wavelengths that might stimulate it. Not, not within that range. Now, you have to understand that near-infrared are the only wavelengths. Visible wavelengths generally do not penetrate the skin, so mm-hmm. they cannot stimulate anything. The near-infrared high-energy waves are the ones that okay. are more... So it's a reflection of the ability to penetrate the skin, which... That's which, right, right. Okay, so uh, it's probably uh, any, 800 anytime, to 1100. 
And why this is important is, of course, as you say, anytime you're in sunlight, you're exposed to near-infrared. But in your office where you're currently sitting or where I am, there's Not no near-infrared. So I think generally humans are relatively melatonin deficient because we do not experience enough sunlight. And even though within the pineal gland, darkness associates or causes the synthesis of melatonin only in the pineal gland, our nights, because people are sleeping less and less, are becoming shorter and shorter. So we're depriving ourselves of a very fundamental and important molecule with our lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's really one of the most, one of the molecules we, if we value our health, we need to seek to optimize the level of melatonin, no question. So along those lines, I, I just want to confirm, you probably, if you're out in the sun with a long sleeve shirt and pants on, you'll probably get some near infrared that penetrates the clothing, but not as much as if you were in no shirt or sports bra and shorts, I would suspect. That's that, true. That's okay, so just want to confirm true. that. All right. So, and then addressing your point of inside, uh, that doesn't have to be, but is the the reality in most everyone's circumstance, because the type of glass that's used is typically low E glass, which uh, shields out almost all the infrared, not not 100%, but a a good portion of it. So you're essentially, if you're in an office, even with the entire office's windows, (laughs) unless it's a no E glass, you're you're not going to get infrared. So what I do to compensate for that, I have a near-infrared bulb, basically a sauna space heat lamp bulb, about 250 watts, and I just keep it on when I'm in my office and have my shirt off. So uh, I'm getting (laughs) near-infrared, for sure. Good for you. Like I say, I think uh, we have altered our environment so much unwittingly without knowing the physiological and health consequences thereof. You have to remember, I always remind people that we evolved for three or four million years in an environment where we had sun exposure. Mm -hmm. And now it's estimated that humans spend less than 10% of their time outside. Yeah. In other words, they're almost always under artificial light, and it's just not the same. 100%. That's why, as I said at the beginning, what's one of my most fundamental foundational principles to optimize your health is you need to be in the sun at least an hour a day, preferably with as little clothing as possible. For Obviously, sure. it's not going to be as, pos- as easy in the winter, so that's which is why it makes more sense to live in subtropical areas. <laughs> like you're in Texas, I'm in Florida, so you can do it most of the year. So. Now, I want to dive into the more details about melatonin because essentially there's two types. There's the the type produced that's uh, intravascular from the pineal gland in your your blood and the type that's subcellular in the melatonin that we just discussed. So interestingly, and you made it really clear in your research that you've done that if you produce, and I was confused on this until I reread your articles, the, not all of them, but 1600 articles will be a will take a long time to go through all this, the studies you wrote, but the, uh, this, the melatonin that your mitochondria produces does not escape the mitochondria or the cell. It doesn't go into the blood. So you're not going to increase in blood levels or serum levels of melatonin by sun exposure. It has to be through pineal gland and through optimization. 
That's, and that's that, absolutely. That, in other words, if you surgically remove the pineal gland from an animal or from a human, it's rarely done in humans unless it's cancerous. Blood levels of melatonin are essentially zero, not totally zero. Mm -hmm. I think what happens is that the other cells, obviously, or the mitochondria and other cells continue to to produce melatonin, and some of it leaks. Mm -hmm leaks out into the blood and gives you a religion. But you have no circadian rhythm. Melatonin production in the pineal gland is highly rhythmic, depending on the light dark cycle. This is not true for melatonin in mitochondria. It's not cyclic. It's not impacted by the light dark environment. It may be affected by certain wavelengths of, of energy, but it's not affected by the light dark environment. So everything you have said is valid. Blood levels are derived from the pineal gland, and this rhythm is very important for, for setting circadian rhythms. In other words, the function of that rhythm or that melatonin is quite different from the function of the mitochondrial-produced melatonin. It sets a rhythm. Of course, there's always some scavenging by that melatonin as well, but the real scavenging really undergoes or is involved with mitochondrial-produced melatonin. Okay. Now, the converse situation is that the melatonin produced by your pineal gland in your blood can go into the mitochondria because there, I believe there's some active transport mechanisms that, that's responsible for that. Very good. Uh, you are really up on it. That's true. If you supplement with melatonin, it can also enter cells and get into the mitochondria as well. And that is also very important, particularly, and I'm not telling your uh, clientele to take melatonin with, during aging, but as you age, Pineal melatonin, and so far as we know, mitochondrial melatonin diminish. And mm -hmm. if you supplement with melatonin, it will get into your mitochondria and, in fact, do what melatonin does. Neutralize free radicals and protect the mitochondria sure. function. So we'll, we'll get into supplementation later, later because I have a lot of questions on that, too. Very important, but I want to still go into the waters and, and set the physiology and understand the basic mechanisms of melatonin. And, and along those lines, I couldn't find anywhere in the research, and I'm sure you know or have an idea with respect to the quantity. So you've got them out produced by the pineal gland. Can you speculate as to the, the level quantitatively that's produced by the pineal gland relative to the cumulative amount that's produced by the mitochondria yes. subcellularly? We have speculated on this. Again, it's difficult to, mm -hmm. to specifically define, but we feel that the pineal gland probably produces 5% or less of the total melatonin in the body. It's a very small organ. It's primarily produced at night. Every other cell in your body has mitochondria and presumably are capable of reducing, of producing, synthesizing melatonin. So the amount produced by the pineal gland is very small, but the rhythm that it produces is very important to regulate your circadian biology. And uh, I mean, we are circadian organisms, obviously. Yes. So that would make sense uh, because it's such a pineal gland is about the size of a pea or not or a small marble. Uh, and then you've got 
I think the spec, the latest stats I remember were like 40 to 100 quadrillion, not trillion, quadrillion mitochondria, because every cell contains hundreds, if not thousands, and some cells, maybe even millions of mitochondria. So, um, yeah, definitely this more. Is, this is also, you're absolutely right. Mitochondria can be very numerous in some cells, especially in cells that require a lot of my high energy, in other mm-hmm. words, the heart. The heart is pumping. And 40% of the volume of the cytosol is occupied by mitochondria in these cells, whereas much less so in other cells. And that implies also that the heart melatonin concentration would be higher. They have more mitochondria to produce it. And of course, they are producing more free radicals because the, the ATP that is produced to cause, of course, contraction of the heart. So all these things are relevant for sure. So I think we, thank you for expanding on that. The, we can dive now into some of the, the uh, diseases that melatonin appears to be useful for. And the two, that, the two biggest diseases that humanity faces right now, <laughs> taking COVID out of the equation, would be heart disease and cancer. So let's start, you mentioned heart disease or heart. So let's talk about the therapeutic implications of optimizing melatonin concentrations to address heart disease? Well, of course, one of the situations that is most devastating for the heart, of course, is temporary interruption of the blood supply. In other words, cardiac arrest. Mm -hmm. This deprives, of course, tissues of oxygen, and without oxygen, they do not function. And then when the blood vessel opens, it's called reperfusion, and oxygen flows into those deprived cells, and they, as a consequence, they generate a lot of free radicals. There's a host of studies, a large host of studies, including some in the human, where if you give melatonin to induced heart attack in animals or mm-hmm. an accidental heart attack in humans, you can preserve or reduce the amount of cardiac infarct, the amount of damage mm. that occurs in the heart. We probably, there's a, a very famous cardiologist in the Canary Islands, Professor Dominguez Rodriguez, who I work with. And we, about two years or three years ago, published a paper where we infuse melatonin directly into the heart after the, after the vessel was opened. And of course, that reduced cardiac damage by roughly. I think it was 40%. Mm-hmm. And now, now we've just published paper. The other thing that happens in a heart attack is cardiac cells do not regenerate. Once you lose a cardiac cell, they're done. A lot of cells, liver, can regenerate a whole liver. But heart, once you lose cells, they're damaged and replaced by, by fibrous tissue. And, of course, fibrous tissue is not contractile, so you get heart failure. We just published a paper, again, with this same cardiologist showing that if people who are potentially suffering with heart failure because of a damaged heart, they survive better and longer if they are given melatonin on a regular basis. It's a small study. It's only been done this one time, but I think that would be a worthwhile field to really exploit. Well, you've addressed two really important areas, the post-MI syndrome and then heart failure, which is pervasive in the United States. So let's, let's address the, the heart attack. 
element first. What type, of, I mean, I suspect most of the studies were done in animals, uh, but in probably a few clinical trials. What is the typical dosages of uh, supplemental melatonin that were being used? Ideally, per milligram per kilogram, I suspect. Yeah. That's a very good question. In terms of animals, now this dose is going to sound high, but it's difficult to translate doses in animals to, to doses in the human. Five to 10 milligrams per kilogram body weight. But when you calculate the dose on a human basis, you calculate it on the basis of surface area rather than on body size, and that significantly reduces the amount of melatonin that is the, that you have to give. How much would you have to give if you had if I had a heart attack and I had melatonin on my person, I would take melatonin. The question is how much? Right. Of course, we don't precisely know, but when we infused it directly into the heart, of course, we had to infuse much less because mm -hmm. we went directly to the heart. Sure. But I would think, again, this is not a recommendation to mm -hmm. any of your patients, but I think I would not be hesitant about taking 50 milligrams at the time and some subsequently for the next 24 hours, even during the day, because you don't want to lose any more heart cells than is absolutely necessary. Yeah, that's a good point. It just occurred to me that I don't really know what the half-life of melatonin is. <laughs> what is it? Well, the half-life of melatonin in the blood. And that's the point. I'm glad you mentioned that. The half-life of melatonin in the blood is about 40 minutes. Wow. However, wow. However, however, within cells, the half-life varies according to the oxidative stress that is ongoing. Mm -hmm. If there's high oxidative stress, it's destroyed much faster. And if it's low oxidative stress, it stays within the cell much longer. In reference to that, I want to also mention, and you probably know this, not only is melatonin a scavenger, but mm -hmm. all of its metabolic kin, N-acetyl-5-methoxycryptine, all these molecules that are produced when it scavengers are likewise scavengers. It's a generational effect. Mm -hmm. In other words, melatonin's children, its grandchildren also are, in fact, good radical scavengers. So the half-life, you have to define on the basis of where you're talking about. Well, so when, what would you guess the half the effective half-life of, of melatonin and its active metabolites are? Well, I think under conditions of high oxidative stress, they're very short because it's okay, so minutes. Very, very relative rapidly utilized. Yeah. We, for example, we did some experiments in uh, before we discovered melatonin as an antioxidant. We didn't understand in animals that are nocturnal, they are active at night. And if you force them to swim, that's a big stress mm -hmm. for these rodents. And what happens under these conditions is melatonin levels disappear from the blood, even though the pineal gland on the basis of the enzyme are producing a lot of melatonin, but it's being very rapidly taken up and metabolized within the cell because of the intense stress and free radicals associated with that maneuver. So, you know, like I say, at any particular time, the half-life of melatonin will vary 
according to the circumstances. And how long does it take for melatonin to enter the bloodstream once you swallow it? Very quickly. In other okay. words, the, the thing you have to consider, of course, is uh, the first pass effect. In other mm -hmm. words, if you swallow melatonin, like everything else that absorbed, it goes through the liver, and the function of the liver is to metabolize melatonin as well. So the bioavailability mm -hmm. of melatonin that is swallowed is less than melatonin where you take it under the tongue sublingual or if you take it intravenously because you avoid that first pass effect. So, but melatonin gets into the system very, very quickly. What about, what about rectally? Say again? Rectally, like a suppository. Oh, thank you. Yeah, there's relatively, there was a gentleman, I forgot his name, five years ago, who contacted me about rectal suppositories. So far as I know, the only size available in rectal suppositories, but you may know otherwise, are 250 milligrams. No, you can make them yourself, whatever dose Well, you of want. course, of course you <laughs> yeah, can. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And I think that would avoid the lower intestine. The blood does not initially go through the, through the liver, and therefore you would be higher bioavailability by a rectal suppository. And I think it'd be also very rapid. Okay. So I, I didn't forget about the uh, application of melatonin for heart failure because I'm really curious as to the dosing. Well, actually, before we go to the heart failure, um, because it's so rapidly absorbed, especially if you're doing sublingual, uh, the first sign of a heart attack, this should be probably the standard of care, uh, standard operating procedure is to give someone 50 milligrams to 100 milligrams of melatonin as soon as possible, and then probably repeat it every few hours. In fact, I have suggested this a number of times. In other words, an emergency medical technician mm -hmm. goes out, picks up a patient who has clearly a heart attack. Gotcha. I think on site, I think immediately, melatonin should be given even intravenously it, rather than even yeah, yeah, we make, yeah, it may yeah. be difficult to give it orally. So you yeah, give yeah. It that would be my recommendation. There's no proof of concept yet that that would be adequate, but certainly in animal studies, in animal studies, you greatly reduce the damage. The sooner you get the melatonin in, and as you mentioned, after thereafter also because reperfusion is just as bad as the ischemia reperfusion injury is just it's worse as bad. it's worse isn't it yeah it, in some cases it's worse absolutely yeah, yeah. so, yeah, so I, a lot of those lines and I, and I hesitate to bring it up but it, it fits perfectly in with this conversation because another valuable i consider supplement even though technically it's a drug it's the oldest drug that we know of, it was discovered in 1876. It's methylene blue. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but- uh, Methylene it, blue, I know, yeah. Yeah, so it, it, I think it is just absolutely phenomenal for reperfusion injuries, if you do it right at the beginning, because it goes in there and it augments all those cytochromes and essentially allows the production, continued production of ATP without the use of oxygen. Because uh, I mean, if you block those like with a, a poison, um, you know, like cyanide, it could, you could it would save your life. It's actually in almost every emergency room too, for just for that reason, for cyanide poisoning. So it seems like methylene blue and melatonin are the one-two punch if you've got a stroke or a heart attack. 
uh, again, I'm not an ex- yeah an expert on ethylene blue, but I know of its beneficial effects. You mentioned something very important. If you give cyanide, mm-hmm. uh, of course, that's a mitochondrial toxin. There was a study already 12, 15 years ago showing that. Now, it's only one study. Mm-hmm. I'd like to see it repeated, but there's also evidence that cyanide poisoning, if you take melatonin, you may also prevent cell death. Wow. But, crazy. Because, I mean, cyanide blocks cytochrome 4, I believe. You know, I, I think, for example, uh, methamphetamines, methamphetamine, you know, these, these illicit drugs are very hard on the brain. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm certainly not encouraging people to take methamphetamines, but if they do, they should take it in combination with melatonin. <laughs> <laughs> are, there are studies. There are studies by very reputable uh, neurological scientists showing that the toxicity of methamphetamines is reduced by melatonin. Like I say, I'm not. I'm not even suggesting that yeah. methamphetamine be taken, but you could protect some of your brain cells from damage. Yeah. It's interesting, interesting artifact. We do not want to give this podcast a reputation for exactly. Yeah, I understand that for recreational drug use. No, no, I understand that. You can cut <laughs> cut all that stuff out. No, 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 it's fine. But it's an interesting observation. Very fascinating. Yeah, uh, but this is this. Is, I I wasn't aware of the the benefit of melatonin reperfusion injuries like it was methylene blue but boy they're the it seems like they're the perfect combo they really they should be part of every emergency kit that is crazy yeah it's never been tried in combination so far as i know and i agree with you yeah it would be very worthy studies to carry out in humans because they're non-toxic molecules all right, so that's for acute reperfusion injury primarily. In, in a stroke, I'm assuming you would, would agree would be included with the post-heart attack because they're almost identical. One is affecting the brain, the other is affecting the heart. Right. Yeah. And, so and No different for the brain. The same right. reperfusion and your stroke. Same, that's what I'm saying. It's the same. Same heart attack. Very similar mechanisms. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, but getting back to heart failure, which is more of a chronic condition than an acute, like a reperfusion. So... What are the doses? And I know you said it was a small study, a uh, clinical trial, but uh, I'm wondering what the dosing would be there. Would it be similar to that for uh, the reperfusion injury? Yeah, it was 10 milligrams per day for, per you day. Mean for the, uh, uh, the heart, failure. heart failure study prolonged. Yeah, uh, again, doses we don't precisely know. Yeah, it's a range. Because there's not enough clinical trials, but I guess my comment would be, any melatonin is good melatonin. In other words, <laughs> it's, it's, it's never going to do any serious harm. There are people who say they have a headache, some dizziness, but if you give 50 people water, but tell half of them that they got a specific drug, 30% of that half will have some physiological consequences. Yeah, it's called depending on which perspective you look at, either the placebo or the no, nocebo effect. You know, exactly. It's well documented, yeah. Exactly. So, um, interesting. So, now, one side effect that I was concerned about, and I definitely want to discuss it with you, especially in light of the dosing recommendations of supplementation, supplementation for melatonin, would be uh, the concern that many people, clinicians have, of high doses of melatonin, 
that have the ability to somehow chelate or take out heavy metals in the body and or extract them in some way. And I'm not sure of the mechanisms, but I know it's a concern, it's heavy metal toxicity. So unless you're addressing that with some type of heavy metal, metal binder, you could have some potential complications. And I'm wondering what your uh, experience with that is. Yeah, I think it is important, particularly with high doses, whatever a high dose constitutes, that we exercise care because we don't know. Mm -hmm. We do know that very high doses of melatonin given to animals, they shrug it off. In other words, there's never been a death in animals associated with giving too much melatonin, even though attempts have been tried. Wow. There's, every drug has what is called an LD50. Right. If you give a dose high enough to kill 50% of the animal, melatonin, there is no LD50. That doesn't mean it's always safe at very high doses. The point you measured about chelating melts may be, in fact, valid. But typically, in most cases, melatonin is taken in the short term in high doses. Although there are many people who take melatonin, obviously, I think like I, you, like you. <laughs> I don't know if you realize that I was shocked by this. In 2021, the amount of the amount of money spent on melatonin was 780 billion, not million. Wow! Wow! And they That's estimate crazy. by 2025. I'm sorry, not billion. I'm so very sorry. Million. 780 million. And by 2025, it will be $1.2 billion. That's a lot. And that, that has got to bring an incredible smile yeah, to you. Yeah. I mean, just because you're largely responsible for that. Well, <laughs> yeah, I have, I should have a vested interest in melatonin, but should I should be giving you a commission. <laughs> in reference to high doses, I want to point something out. I have colleagues who work with melatonin, who are scientists like I am, very good friends. Mm -hmm. Two of them have diabetes. Diabetes is a very bad disease. Hyperglycemia mm -hmm. produces massive amounts of free radicals. Even if you're on insulin, you're hyperglycemic sometimes. To counter this, listen to this carefully, they take one gram of melatonin daily. One gram of melatonin. Wow. Because, I mean, of their, their, because of their diabetes. Yeah, because there's so many side effects in terms of atherosclerosis. Yeah, yeah. I, I could think, I mean, that's okay with melatonin, but there's so many better things that you could treat. Yeah. Melatonin doesn't treat the cause. Yeah. Oh, it's, ah. it's, it's metabolic inflexibility primarily. Yeah. So, yeah. But it does protect the side effects pretty well. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if one gram is necessary, but... That's what they're doing. But it's, it's what they do because they have such confidence. You know, in reference to that, people say, when they talk about melatonin, sometimes you hear people say, 50 milligrams, that's such a high dose for an antioxidant. I remind them that Linus Pauling, when he was working with vitamin C, he suggested up to four grams of vitamin C daily. So, you know, yeah. doses yeah, I, are still I, unknown. Yeah, I take about, I actually take, let me see, 50, I take about four or five grams a day of vitamin C, 
but it's it's whole food vitamin C. It's the right. whole molecule from my source is acerola cherries that grow in my front yard. So I get about four or five grams a day, but I don't take ascorbic acid at all. I would only take ascorbic acid, which is people confuse with vitamin C. It's not, it's, 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 a, it's a synthetic derivative molecule and it's very effective. It's a, it's like a drug. It, it really can save your life in, in septic shock, but I wouldn't take it as a daily supplement. I would take the whole food vitamin C, but, but you're right. It's, it's in much higher doses. So, but I, I thank you so much for bringing up the lethality of it. So it kind of reminds me of um, Dr. Jonathan Wright, who said that when he was talking about vitamin B12, that uh, another natural molecule that the, 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 the pretty much the only way you can die from B12 is if you drown in a bathtub full of it, because it's just no known toxicity. So it sounds like there's no known toxicity, no lethal dose that's ever been identified for melatonin. Yeah, uh, yeah. I've I, I made that comment also that uh, more people die from uh, electric or or lightning, lightning than they do from melatonin. And that is extremely oh. rare. Well, I, does does there have been any reported deaths from melatonin? Well, uh, unfortunately, in the last couple of months, there's been some really foolish reports claiming that five children out of many, many thousands that were given melatonin reportedly died of melatonin. Wow. But they, they, there is no proof of that. In other words, if you look at the data carefully, they may have been taking other medications. They measured the melatonin levels in these individuals, and they range from 5 to 4, 1,400 picograms per milliliter. So there was no uniformity in circulating melatonin. And they were not specific about how the melatonin was ingested, time of day, and so forth. In other words, I'm very doubtful of the findings. Uh, yeah, it would we, seem unlikely. But no. Not going to even reproduce that in animals yeah. at all. And again, I, I don't want to mean melatonin is always, always perfect. It's yeah. a good, wholesome molecule. And there may be some situations we may discover where it's not appropriate, but oh, I'm sure that's way. the case. Yeah, we did. We uh, don't know. We don't know. Right. So you had mentioned the radical increase in melatonin in the last few years, and I suspect a good reason for that may have been the finding that melatonin can be used therapeutically to treat COVID-19. So I'm wondering if you can comment on that, because I'm sure you're familiar with this and uh, tell us. The dosing record, dosing doses that were used, and potentially the mechanism of action. That's a good point. Yes, one of the big interests or one of the big stimulus stimuli for melatonin use the last couple of years may have been COVID nineteen because there's about two hundred publications in the scientific literature suggesting the use of melatonin for this condition. Among melatonin, many functions of melatonin, it's also an antiviral agent. And as a consequence, it has been effectively used in COVID-19. I'm going to give you a very specific example. Mm -hmm. There's a local physician, Dr. Richard Neal, mm -hmm. who I have known for a number of years. And when COVID-19 became common, he called me. We discussed it. He started getting one milligram per kilogram body weight 
for about five days at the time of diagnosis. He has now treated more than 2,000 patients very successfully with melatonin. And this is very important. Was that, was that a once a day dose or was it divided? This was a once a day dose. This was a one. First, the first dose was given immediately when the patient presented in the in his clinic if they were considered to have, of course, COVID. But then thereafter it was given on a regular basis. And the importance of melaton in reference to COVID is that it is not specifically for COVID-19. It's offspring, the Delta, the Omicron, mm, the variant. As their viruses, we think will respond. We have currently a paper in press, for example, where we showed that in animals, Zika virus toxicity is also prevented by melatonin. And we've checked four different coronaviruses in pigs. And that paper is already published also showing that melatonin prevents the, the damage that consequence of those viruses. I think that's generally a quite good antiviral agent and should be considered as a useful. When, when uh, President Trump was actually hospitalized with COVID, one of the molecules he was given was melatonin, which is... Obviously, these physicians him, knew this literature. So now you're, but you are, the, you are the world expert in melatonin. There's no one that exceeds your knowledge on the topic. So it would seem that a once a day dosing would be relatively foolish with considering its short half-life. So as your, as a world-class expert, what do you, what would you propose as an, a better physiological dosing strategy? And what would be the, the, uh, the route of administration, uh, sublingual. I mean, I guess maybe it tends to the, the, the severity of the illness. I mean, if the person's, you know, on a ventilator, then they may want to put him, make an IV, of course, but in general, you know, yeah. an ambulatory outpatient. Well, the, the route of administration, if you're going to self-administer, has to be simple. In other yeah. words, it can't be intravenously or even uh, rectally, it wouldn't be very easy, but I would say oral-based melatonin, swallow or sublingual. If, in other words, if you feel you have COVID, you run a quick test, there's a quick test to do it, and you have some infection, I think melatonin on a regular basis would be good, but additionally, it's taken some during the day. Now, people mm -hmm. immediately say, oh, you're going to chronically or d disrupt their circadian rhythms. Disruption of circadian rhythms is a very low price to pay for if you survive or you don't prevent serious COVID. So yeah. um, how often should you take it? I mentioned that, of course, in the blood, the half-life is 40 minutes. But in the cell, it's mm -hmm. significantly longer depending on the circumstances. We have suggested on some occasions that melatonin be taken, of course, at bedtime. And then at the time of awakening and at 10 a.m. and at 4 p.m. Now, this, again, is not a recommendation to your people, but this is something to consider. That, right, that makes more sense. So keep it away from noon when you're when yeah. theoretically solar noon. So that would be like in your daylight savings center right. at 1 p.m. 
So that would be the theoretical lowest point of your melatonin in your blood because that's when it's maximally suppressed. Yeah, yeah, very low. Yeah, circulating melatonin during the day is negligible. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's really good. So question about the nighttime dose, saying you're doing sublingual, is it sufficient to do it right before you go to bed or what might it be a bit more optimal to do a half hour or even 45 minutes to an hour before you go to bed, just to give it time to get into the circulation? In fact, that's exactly what I do. My first first dose of melatonin is about 45 minutes before I want to go to sleep. And then the sec- I, I divide my dose in the evening. Then the second dose is about 15 to 20 minutes, 15 minutes before I want to go to sleep. So yeah, I do exactly what you say. I divide that dose and give it advance of the time I want to go to sleep. All right. And so your dose is oral, I'm assuming, or is it time release or what do you, what, 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 what are you using? <laughs> Oh, what am I doing? I, I happen to use a sublingual uh, dose of melatonin. You say sublingual, but when you put it on your tongue and it dissolves, you're also swallowing because yeah, it, right. it stimulates salivary production. So you're you're getting both sublingual and, uh, and oral. orally administered melatonin. But, uh, you know, I, I think... Uh, there are a lot of different preparations that are available. There are slow release, there are retarded release. And, and I'm sure some of them have utility. They just have not been tested as extensively. Okay. So that's interesting. So, and I think we can get, we can go into your, your, actually, before we go into your specific dosing, we'll get back to that. I, we didn't address the biology of this second kind of going to rapidly to the number one leading cause of death in the United States and worldwide, which would be cancer. So melatonin has some very intriguing benefits. And I read your spectacular article uh, on this. It was, I mean, you published so many, but this one was about three years ago, where you go into how it impacts the Warburg effect. And uh, so maybe you can review that. Basically, uh, uh, anaerobic glycolysis, where yeah. it's, you can't shuttle the pyruvate back into the mitochondria because right. it inhibits it with PD, PDK. Cancer cells are clever. Yeah, They do everything they can to permit their continued survival. One of the things they do is, it, it seems counterintuitive, but what they do is they prevent pyruvate from entering the nuclear, excuse me, the mitochondria, and that reduces ATP production. But as a consequence of doing that, they accelerate something called glycolysis, and that's very inefficient in producing ATP, but it does it very rapidly. So then they have sufficient energy to take on this. The important feature of preventing pyruvate from entering the mitochondria, we now think is the fact that pyruvate is a precursor to something called acetyl-coenzyme A. Acetyl-coenzyme A is a cofactor for the enzyme that regulates melatonin production in the mitochondria. So by eliminating or preventing pyruvate from getting into the mitochondria, they prevent 
or reduce melatonin production because they don't allow the cofactor, necessary cofactor to be produced. In other words, we predicted about four years ago that in fact, the mitochondria of cancer cells would produce less melatonin. We have subsequently shown that in two studies, both uterine cancers, but clearly melatonin levels and the activity of the enzymes in the mitochondria of these type cancer cells, at least, are about half what they would normally be. The prevention of pyruvate into the mitochondria, that's Warburg-type metabolism, and of course, they produce a lot of it. And the other thing that does is the pyruvate is metabolized as something called lactic or lactic acid. It escapes the cell and produces an acidic environment for the cancer cell, and cancer cells like that acidic environment. So, in fact, there are many things that if you can reduce the Warburg-type metabolism, you may be able to limit the growth of cancer cells and perhaps also the metastasis. Metastasis, of course, is what typically kills a patient as opposed, I mean, you don't want a primary tumor either, mm-hmm. but if you can reduce metastasis, it would be. And yeah, it's interesting, the paper that I read of yours, uh, you had mentioned that uh, there was this, the Warburg effect wasn't present uh, at nighttime. It was only present in the, in the daytime when melatonin levels will know, but, but in the, I think it was an in vivo study that was yeah. referenced and the, the uh, but when nighttime came around, the Warburg effect stopped, and it, it was appeared to be related to the melatonin levels. Yeah, the point of that paper was that some cancer cells may only be part-time cancerous mm-hmm. because when they have high melatonin, then they avoid Warburg-type metabolism. The interesting thing about Warburg-type metabolism, people usually equate it to cancer, but many pathological cells, inflammatory cells cells that are affected by amyloid beta in the brain, they all exhibit this specific type metabolism, which is generally considered to be a pathological type metabolism. And presumably, we already know that inflammatory cells, they're called M2 and M1 inflammatory cells, they can be converted by back and forth by melatonin. The inflammatory cell can be prevented by giving them with melatonin and its effect on Warburg-type metabolism. So Warburg-type metabolism is common in many, many pathological cells. Yes. So as you were describing that, it occurred to me that uh, an interesting observation, I'd like your feedback on it, but I just want to expand on the pyruvate a little bit because many people may not understand that Glucose or sugar, of course, is one of the primary fuels that most people have. In fact, the majority of people that uses their primary fuel. But when you take, there's this, uh, glucose is metabolized to, is a six carbons, is metabolized to a three carbon molecule, which is pyruvate. And that's the molecule you were talking about. And uh, it it then ultimately gets metabolized in the mitochondria to acetyl-CoA. But but the problem with the Warburg effect, which that was the most elegant description of the Warburg effect I've ever, I never really got the Warburg effect until you explained it so well in that paper. But essentially you have this pyruvate dehydrogenase kinase, PDK, that inhibits the 
inflow of pyruvate into the mitochondria so it can be converted. But, but so that's one source. The other source of fuel is glucose to pyruvate to make acetyl-CoA, which is so important for producing melatonin. But the other source is fatty acid oxidation, yeah, which breaks, breaks it right down to acetyl-CoA and it goes into the mitochondria pretty seamlessly through, I think, MCT, um, yeah. um, the uh, met, um, monochain, tra- chain tra- I forget what it is. It's a, it's, a, it's a transport, it's active transport to get it into the mitochondria. Thank but, you for uh, mentioning that. You're right. Acetyl-CoA yeah. is generated by fatty acids. Yeah, yeah, but le- here's the here's the point, the, the epiphany, the light bulb moment I had when we were discussing it. Just last week, there was a study out of Tufts. You, and you may not be aware of this, because, I mean, we knew it was high, but this is, this is brand new. 14 out of 15 people in the United States, 93% are metabolically inflexible. In other words... They have lost the ability to seamlessly transition between burning carbohydrate as fuel and converting to pyruvate to converting fat as a fuel. So they are just impaired. So the vast majority of the population, this worker effect becomes massive. But if you're healthy, cardiometabolically healthy, and you can burn fat, you kind of bypass that defect. So I think that's one of the reasons why, you know, we're so damn sick is because we've lost the ability to burn fat and to generate the acetyl-CoA, which is so important to create melatonin. Uh, Thank you for telling me that. I wonder if you would be willing to email that reference to me. I have not seen that. Yeah, it's it's, it's, very, very important. Yeah, it was not a, I mean, the best reference we had before that was an NHANES study published in 2016. So it's already six years old. And that reference was 88%. Now it's up to 93%. That is just shocking. Probably it's on its way to 95%. Right. <laughs> Hardly anyone's healthy anymore. It's crazy. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll be glad to send that to you. Uh, they... Uh, Okay, so that we've covered that up. So, you know, this is so important. So, I mean, we didn't really cover it completely because I'm, I'm curious as to your thoughts. You've given your recommendations therapeutically, at least, but it would seem, especially, I guess it's a, it's a tough answer because the question depends on the person. But if you're elderly, I'd say over 60, and the older, the more important it becomes, it makes sense to, from your perspective, to take a higher dose, not only to optimize melatonin levels, prevent free radical damage, but to sort of serve as, especially if you're metabolically flexible, as uh, uh, some of your colleagues are doing for treating their diabetes, is to have this relatively high level continuously, ideally probably taken right before bedtime and maybe at 10 in the morning at 4 p.m. as supplemental doses because of the short half-life, just to address these concerns and, and help limit the likelihood that you're going to have a cancer. Surely, uh, you're right. Typically, we suggest that with increasing age, the dose of melatonin be improved. <laughs> increased. <laughs> improved. Or increased, at least. And, and the other issue I'm often asked is, at what age if you're going to supplement with melatonin, at what age should you initiate that? We've discussed this frequently, and it probably is varies according to the individual, in as much as, as with everything else, there are genetic differences in the amount of melatonin individuals produce, like thyroid. There's hyperthyroidism, 
there's hypothyroidism. There are cases of hypomelatoninism where at least based on a nocturnal rise in melatonin, there are some people who are not producing as much melatonin. And maybe this is related to rate of aging. And in fact, those individuals may begin supplementation early. Now, it's very difficult to find your own melatonin levels because you have to get the nighttime values. Mm-hmm. You have to get the nighttime values in darkness. If you go to your physician, you say, measure my melatonin, we'll all have nothing. low yeah. melatonin levels. So there is that, that issue. But generally, we agreed that maybe 40 to 45, you should begin supplementing with small amounts of melatonin. Again, not a recommendation, but something we've discussed. And as you get older, progressively more. Yeah, yeah. So is this an assay that can be done in a commercial laboratory like Quest or LabCorp? Say again? The melatonin levels, because that can that be done in a commercial lab? Yeah, there, there's a number of labs. There are, there are now even some hospitals where the clinical chemistry is including melatonin because it's something it's becoming such a big deal. But yeah, there are a number of clinical labs where this can be done. But again, that's not within two hours. You know, you mail it there, and a week later you get the results and so forth. But there are there are more and more labs and uh, clinical chemistry units now. Measuring melatonin. Does it require special processing? Because no, no, it's very simple. You don't have to, don't have to freeze it or anything. Exactly. It's like practically any clinical chemistry okay. procedure. It's all automated and very simple to do now. Okay, that's good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I heard one of your listening to one of your podcasts where you referencing the challenges of assaying melatonin levels when you first started your research. <laughs> oh man, very indirect methods of. <laughs> A pencil fish to the pencil to fish. very crude, very crude at best. Very, very at best was very crude. Yeah, yeah. So to. it's a lot easier, a lot easier nowadays. Yeah. All right. So I guess we could dive into what you know, people. I mean, you've had 1,600 papers. You started your research, and I think your first paper was published in 1964. So people probably know you've been around for a while. You've been doing this. No, your PhD was 64, but you probably published that paper too. So uh, you're doing this almost 60 years. So you, you know, you're up there. You're, what, 85, 86 years old now? I'm 86 years old. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and you, you, know, you probably have the best mental acuity per age of anyone I've ever interviewed. Uh, and I've interviewed people over close to hundred. I mean, really good researchers like Fred Kumaro. He was, I think maybe he was 99 when he interviewed maybe or or hundred. It was really close. Uh, he was good, but not as sharp as you. And I think relatively speaking, you know, I'm really impressed with your mental acuity because, you know, especially looking at our current president, it's like you're, you're seven years seniors too. So, yeah. uh, You know, I've been taking melatonin for 28 years. Again, that implies or that that has been beneficial. I can't prove that mm-hmm. since I have no control. But I am hopeful that taking the melatonin will preserve some of my neurons and other cells as well to mm-hmm. allow me to continue for, I don't know how soon I'll consider retiring, but it's not yet on the horizon. That's good. That's good. You know, that, 
Retirement is a, I think, an early 20th century anachronism that's really out of place now. You really, I don't think anyone should ever retire because the moment you do, the likelihood that you're accelerating more rapidly towards your premature demise is, is just increased pretty dramatically because you've got to be involved in your passion. You need to be something that excites you about life every day. And, you know, just to go and sit on the beach and drink margaritas is not going to cut it. You want to do that short term, fine, but that's, you know, that's not the, or play golf, you know, that gets old real quickly. It's interesting you mentioned that. That's one thing. That's one reason I'm, I'm frightened of retiring. Yeah. Yeah. You should be, you should be. It's a death sense for most people. People retire to, in my mind, to die. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That that is not my plan. (laughs) But yeah, good. That, that, there are no guarantees, obviously, but yeah. So okay, so we we, we alluded, we gave it the context for for uh, you're taking the melatonin, but I think you're taking about 100 milligrams. Is or why don't you tell us precisely what? Right now it's around 80, but you're right. I'm taking as much as 300, but okay. right now it's right around 80 per day. And you divide divided doses, I mentioned. Okay, are you, are you doing the 10 a.m., 4 p.m., and then only occasionally, minutes? depending upon you know if if I have a condition where I think free radicals are involved, I would take it during the day. I do not routinely at this point take it during. Okay, day. Oh, so only if it's an acute scenario, would you take it yeah. three times? Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Boy, that is, I'm telling. <laughs> I am so excited to have this connection with you and really the, go into the details and understand the the, the, phys- the, the, the pharmacokinetics and the, of the melatonin so that you can optimize the dosing of this incredibly important therapeutic molecule. I mean, yeah. it's just shocking. It, it's so underutilized. Yeah, I think so underutilized. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that methylene blue, I mean, they're the, those are the two gifts. I mean, you got to have these two. They're, they got to be in your, your emergency kit for sure. I mean, it's, it is, I mean, and, and interesting thing about both of them, yeah. they Never are been cheap as can be. I mean, they're not expensive. They're almost free. Yeah. yeah. They've never been combined in the test that I know of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, I mean, it's just so obvious. They're both, be- but both beautifully. They they have similar mechanisms in some in some not well, not really, but they work well. They're a powerful synergistic component. So, uh, wow. So is there, now? I think that the, I think I've covered most of my question. I wondered if you if the, you think I've left anything out or would then anything important that you'd like to mention that I neglected. Well, other than there are many, many, many diseases that have a free radical basis or oxidative stress basis. And of course, also aging is very much linked to failure of your mitochondria. Mm -hmm. So anything you can do to maintain functional mitochondria will preserve your cells and prevent their senescence. So, again, melatonin is lost as you age. Yeah. And well, so you're losing your best defense against aging. Best defense. You're losing a very good defense against aging when your melatonin levels diminish. Yeah, and, that, and that's why I'm such a big fan of methylene blue. Uh, it's low dose. So we're talking somewhere about 20 to 30 milligrams a day which is relatively tiny, you know, pretty similar to, you know, what I 
I guess with many respects to the melatonin dose, but it, 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 I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but at those doses, it's speculated to increase mitochondrial efficiency, ATP production by 30%, 30%. It's crazy. It's just a free 30%. I will say, I did, I interviewed uh, Francisco Gonzalez Lima, who's not, I might be aware of him. He's, he's in Texas and maybe which which uh, te- Texas University? Are you I, think he's at Houston. I think he's at Houston Baylor. I thought he was Austin. I thought he was Austin, oh. but I don't know. But he's definitely at the University of Texas, no question. I will send you the interview that I did with him and uh, and, and some more details just for the methylene because I think it really, I think you benefit from it. I really do, and it's just a crazy good. good I would like uh, to see that. Yeah, and as I said, I think a four-year supply is like seventeen dollars. So <laughs> four years—that—that's the other advantage that these molecules have. Yeah, I'll give you an example for the treatment of COVID. Of course, remdesivir was one of the major molecules used. A week treatment with remdesivir is three thousand dollars. 3,500, I think. <laughs> it kills you. It kills you. Increases your risk of death. It doesn't decrease. It increases. A week's treatment with melatonin, five, six, seven bucks. You know, it's hard to imagine not using. Yeah. yeah, and the methylene blue could actually be used to treat COVID too. And a week's treatment of, so five or six for the methylene blue, maybe 25 cents for the methylene blue. <laughs> I mean, five or six for the melatonin, 25 cents for the methylene blue. So, or maybe less, probably less, but it's basically free. So this is outrageously great. I'm just so happy to make the connection with you and just so appreciate all the hard persevering work you've done in helping bring this magnificent molecule to greater awareness and congratulations on being such a huge influence on radically increasing its its use in the last year or two so that's got you got it's got to bring joy to your heart to do, they know that you're responsible well, for them i fell into it many years ago and haven't been able to get out of it so <laughs> <laughs> it's been a pleasure talking to you and all right well thanks so much and you keep keep up the great work you bet you be well all right you too thank you